very end of chapter 11, which is where we ended up last week. Hebrews chapter 11, very end and beginning in verse, uh, chapter 12. Look at verse 39. It says, these, talking about the roll call of faith, were all com- commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only, only together with us would they be made perfect. And we looked at this last week just at the fact that this is for us. In chapter 11, the writer had pulled out all the stops with the roll call of faith. He had gone through all the great history of Israel and all the great men and women of God who had done wonderful things. Of course, I used the word great advisedly because we saw both those lists last week and how at the same time that you have this great roll call of faith, you have at the same time the very same people being just as sinful as could be. And yet these are the ones that he uses for this great sermon illustration where he pulls out all these images of people and he tugs at the heartstrings of every Jew talking about their Jewish heritage and about how all of this led up to Jesus the Messiah. And so he totally has, has got them, I think, with this notion that there is something better that they were looking toward and didn't receive it, but we do. And then in chapter 12, at the very beginning, he starts talking about these particular individuals as being a a cloud of witnesses. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... And of course, this is exactly who he's talking about, is this roll call of faith. And the image is kind of like this. The image is like a stadium. And around the edge of the stadium, there are are a cloud of witnesses. There is a crowd of witnesses, all watching what is going on down inside the stadium. And they're watching and they're cheering. They're, They're, in one sense, even participating with the athletes who are running down at the bottom of the arena the race of their lives. And then those who are watching the race, those who are in the crowd, they're not just any crowd. This is a group that has run this great race. These great witnesses of faith have persevered and gone there before the ones who are in the bottom of the arena running now. And so when they cheer, they cheer from experience. They're the ones who were deserted. They're the ones who were, as the text says in chapter 11, sawn in two. They're the ones who remained faithful and they're the ones who are now cheering. And they know exactly what those who are in the bottom of the arena are experiencing. Now, I got to tell you, I'm from Oregon. And where I come from is where runners come from. Texas has football. Indiana has basketball. California has swimmers and volleyball players. Pennsylvania produces quarterbacks. Canada produces hockey players. Oregon produces runners. And so Steve Prefontaine is from Oregon. Alberta Salazar went to Oregon. The most recent silver medalist in the Olympic Games in the 10,000 meters went to Oregon. They all do. Because all the great runners are from Oregon. And so being from Oregon, I was a runner. 
I was a marathon runner. And in February of 1977, I reached the beach boardwalk at the end of the Trails End Marathon, having just run just under 26 miles, and I had about 400 meters to go. I was in 14th position out of about 1,000, but this was the district championship for my university. And so all the people who were running marathons within this district for my university, this was our marathon championship, and we were just in among the 1,000 runners. It was kind of a, a race within a race. And I'm running, and uh, as I get to this position, I, I'm traveling down a very narrow street, and you, you run down this narrow street right toward the beach, and then just before you get to the sand, there's kind of a, a boardwalk, which is actually all cement, and you take a right angle, and you run for about 400 meters parallel to the ocean, you know, along the beach. And what's really cool at this particular race is that as you turn that corner, you come out of this street onto the ocean, and turn the corner, and there are hundreds of people who are lined up along the boardwalk cheering you as you go on. Like, and all of a sudden, you're just there. Like They're not on the street, and you go around a building, step up onto the boardwalk, and there are hundreds of people all of a sudden on each side. And they're, like if I was running down this aisle here, like this, these people are right here, okay, for 400 meters. And they're just cheering like crazy. And because I was 14th out of the 1,000 or so, they weren't tired of cheering yet. You know, you can imagine 999 gets the polite applause from the few who are still standing there, okay? But at this point, things were, were good. So I turn onto this final stretch. I've just run 26 miles. I'm exhausted. But this crowd all of a sudden exhilarates me. And at the same time, I hear... The timer, there's a, a, a guy reading times right there. And as soon as I turned the corner, he shouted out my time. And I knew immediately, I thought, I've got 400 meters to go, and he's telling me my time, and I'm thinking, this is very good. It was the race of my life. And uh, I thought, I'm, I'm a first-year university student, and I'm about to break the district record. I'm going to the nationals here in a few weeks because they're going to send me. I'm, I'm thinking all these thoughts as I turn the corner and start down through this crowd. And the only way I can explain what happened to me is that I had a spiritual experience. And, and I began, as I was running down through this crowd, I began to pray out loud with, with hundreds of people cheering as I'm running down through this gauntlet. I was praying out loud. And I mean out loud. Because I knew that something was happening that was wonderful in my life. And the only thing I wanted to do at that moment was to thank God. And so I did. And probably for about 200 meters, as I ran down between this, these two lines of people with them all cheering, I just kept saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for letting me run. Thank you for making me a runner. God, I'm so glad that I'm your child. And I just, I was praying out loud like that from these people. And, and I'm sure that for some of them that was a little bit uncomfortable as they heard me as I ran by. But I heard a few praise the Lords also come out of the crowd as I ran down through this gauntlet of people. And it was just such a cool moment. And most of the people who were alongside, you know, most of them are Christians, of course, but almost all of them have something to do with running. 
they've got a family member who's in that race or, or they know, you know they themselves are a runner. Maybe, maybe they're one of the 13 who'd already finished ahead of me. I mean, who knows? But these people are all involved in this and they're right into it as I'm running and they're cheering me on. And, and that's exactly the kind of, of image that's going on here with this cloud of witnesses who have shared already in what's going on. And they're now cheering, not just for the writers, uh, readers here, not just the readers of this letter, but they're cheering for you and me. The cloud of witnesses are watching us as we run in our faith before Christ. Now, a gr- little bit of a grammar lesson here. I want you to look at this text with me. Brenna, could you move it one slide forward, please? Thank you. Look at this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sins that so easily entangles. And you can see four times there, I've got some words colored in a darker color than the others, or a bluer color, right? How's that look on the screen? Oh, okay, yeah. I'm looking at blue. You're looking at red. Okay, so it's red. And notice he says... Three times, twice in verse 2, then once in verse, or, or twice in verse 1, once in verse 2, and then the last one, let us, let us, let us. And then finally he says, consider. And these are exhortations. This is the writer saying to the readers, let's be like this. In fact, there's a sense in which the writer himself is cheering them on along with the crowd of witnesses, screaming encouragement to them, who are, some of whom are weary in their faith, that they need to be faithful. Now, what does he cheer? Well, you can see it with me. First, he yells to the runners, get rid of what is slowing you down. Get rid of the impediment. Throw off the weights. Some of you might run, some of you work out in, in different ways, and you wear ankle weights. And you know what that's like. You wear a pound or two on your ankles and you work out. What does it feel like when you take those weights off? Doesn't that feel great? And that's exactly what he says to him. Take off your ankle weights. Run free. If there's sin that entangles you, get rid of it. If there are vines that have grabbed onto your ankles as you've been running along, get rid of those vines. If it's temptation to return to Judaism, get rid of it and throw off the weight. I remember my father telling me when he was... My dad played high school football. And in 1940, when he graduated from high school, he played in the state championship game in Oregon. And he scored two touchdowns in that game. But he described for me, because he was a running back, how he would get the ball and he would start to go on a long run. And back in those days, some of you might even be old enough to remember this, they had heavy leather helmets on their heads. And you've probably seen pictures, even if you've never seen one. And dad said that he would like go around end and he'd start running toward the goal line. And he would literally take his helmet and rip it off his head because the thing weighed so much that he didn't want to be weighed down by it. And then he'd run the rest of the field. 
This is exactly what we need here to do. It's the image of getting rid of those things that weigh us down and slow us down, prevent us from being as faithful as we should be. Get rid of them, he said. If this was Jesus talking, he would say, pluck it out. Get rid of that thing that holds you back so that you can run free. That's the first thing he says. The second thing is, he yells these words of encouragement. You're in this for the long haul. Keep going to the very end. Endure. Persevere. Some, I think, had expected this to be a sprint. Perhaps they had thought that Jesus should have returned by now. Or perhaps they didn't expect persecution. They didn't expect opposition. But now as they turn the corner onto their own beach boardwalk after running 26 miles they got 400 meters to go and there's a squall that's come in off the ocean and the wind and the rain is in their faces and they're trying to finish the race but it's blowing just as hard against them as it could and they're battling the elements and now after so long they find themselves ready to give up and then the witnesses begin to yell you can do it You can make it. You can endure. So the crowd alongside is yelling and screaming for them. And just like I experienced the sense of adrenaline in me as I entered that gauntlet, they can experience not just human adrenaline, but the Holy Spirit working within them, encouraging them, the Lord encouraging them, bringing them to a new power. And they're able, with the help of the crowd of witnesses, to make it to the very end. And so don't give up now. You've got only a short ways to go. The third encouragement includes an exhortation that says something like, in the middle of all of this, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who endured the cross. And the writer in a moment is going to say in verse 4, You have not yet endured to the point of having to shed your blood. But he says that because he knows that there is one who did shed his blood. And so it's important for us at this point to remember exactly what the cross was. The cross was not a gold pendant on the end of a chain. The cross was not smoothly sanded wood painted and placed in the top of a church building. The cross was no glorious symbol of hope for the world. The cross was instead a symbol of utter agony. It was a symbol of shame, of dishonor, of disgrace. Those carrying their crosses were struck down. They were spit upon, ridiculed, stripped naked, beaten, laughed at, scorned. They were considered criminals and traitors. They were hated by both the Jews and by the Romans. And Jesus was this. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We talked last night in Life Group about what exactly that means. What is it that was on Jesus' mind that would cause him to have joy while he's considering the cross and enduring the cross? What would give him joy even then? And it may be a combination of things. He's thinking about going and being at the right hand of God. The text specifically says that. But I can't help but think that Jesus at that moment has on his mind more than anything the salvation that is ours. 
that he's thinking about you and me. And so while Jesus is thinking about going to the cross, there's a joy deep down inside somewhere because he's thinking about what's going to come into our lives because of his disgrace. And so the faith of the runners is encouraged by fixing their eyes on Jesus. Stare at him. Drink deeply from him. And take from Jesus hope. Then there's a last exhortation. Focus your mind, your thoughts on the one who endured what he endured at the hands of sinful men. Consider Jesus. You know, back in chapter 4, verse 15, the text says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. And isn't this the ultimate irony? That the one who didn't sin endures this kind of opposition, specifically, the text says, at the hands of sinful men. Those most guilty were ridiculing and persecuting and torturing the one least guilty of all. You know, there's that scene in in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where Frodo and Sam Wygangi are climbing up the mountain at the end. And just for a moment there, because this is what this ring does to Frodo, he turns to Sam, and all of a sudden, Sam is the enemy. And he looks at him and says something to him like, you know, you just want the ring. And Sam has done everything in his power to try and get Frodo to this point. And it's the ultimate irony that Frodo would at that moment be accusing Sam of being ingenuous. And then he comes to his senses. And he recognizes that indeed Sam loves him. And Sam wants him to finish his race. And it's this irony that has to be overcome that we as sinful men are also somehow responsible for putting to death the very one who dies for us. And so we need encouragement to overcome our own sinfulness, that our, our own betrayal And to be what God wants us to be, faithful until the end. Now, I've got just a moment here. I have written, as my close, a rant. I have a rant. I want you to listen to my rant. It goes like this. Folks... We live at a crucial, critical time. Many Christians, especially young Christians, have been compelled to reevaluate their faith today as if perhaps it's not true. 
And they're told of the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or colonization or Constantinianism or American imperialism or capitalistic materialism as if these movements are somehow directly based on who Jesus was and what he taught and as if Jesus and his true followers were responsible for all the tragedies that have happened in Western society. They're told that there's a mountain of things that are wrong with the church. And I'll admit that those who've claimed to follow Jesus have a lesser or greater extent. To that extent, they've not followed him. But as one who has carefully investigated these things over the last 40 years, some words of advice. And, and I, wish, I wish in one sense that the young people were all here today. I, you know, I almost want to get to Dustin and say, Dustin, you need to have all the teenagers listen to this podcast. Because they need to not just accept the accusations against Christ and Christianity or accept claims made about the irrationality of belief in God without at least considering these things at great length and seriously testing their truthfulness. And my point is, is that constantly... We hear claims made about how Jesus wasn't really that good and the church isn't really that good and, and Christianity has done so much more bad than it's done good. And it is simply not the case. It is not true. And the claims that are made about Christianity are false in so many cases. The young people especially hear claims made against Christianity in the church and with very little serious investigation, they accept all these claims, or at least allow all these claims to color their view of Christ and the church. And I want to say to you, if you waver with your faith at all, and especially to the young ones, don't just accept such claims just because it's considered more socially acceptable to disbelieve or to criticize the church or because you're embarrassed to go against the grain of society in its attack against Christ and the church. Study history for yourself. Study ethics for yourself. Study science and philosophy for yourself. Read the Bible and evaluate the church for yourself. And please don't stop after reading one or two or ten books critical of Christianity, thinking that such critics have said all there is to say. I weary of hearing about those who've taken a class or two, read a couple of books, listened to a couple of lectures, and have decided that Christianity is not true, or that it's not noble, or that it's intellectually indefensible. Often I find the intellectual effort that's been expended in such investigations of Christ and the church to be truly second class. It simply doesn't measure up to the best of human investigative efforts. It's shallow, it's incomplete. And those who conduct their inquiries in this way too often reach conclusions and make statements about Christ and Christianity that have little or no merit whatsoever. They're simply looking for an easy way to excuse themselves from taking seriously the claims that Christ makes on their lives. They simply wish to not be uncomfortable in their belief. Or they wish to sin and feel better about it. Or they're lazy, particularly intellectually. And so they don't want to do the hard work on their own of finding out the truth about Christ and Christianity, about Christian history, about the real teachings of Jesus, about what authentic Christianity looks like. Some have been hurt by Christians 
or by the church or by their loved ones who are Christians. And so because they've been hurt, even to the point of hearing criticisms of Christianity and accepting them because it's psychologically soothing to do so, they just don't remain faithful. And while this is understandable and it's explainable, it's kind of like despising gravity because somebody built a deck on your house and the deck fell down and hurt you. And instead of blaming the builder, you blame gravity. And that's what I think people do when they look at the results of Christianity sometimes. They look at something like the Crusades and they say, Christianity's not true or Christianity has more problems than the rest of the world because of something like the Crusades. You're going to blame Christ for the Crusades? You're going to blame Jesus for the Spanish Inquisition? It makes no sense, but that's where we go sometimes. And it's so easy to parrot easy answers that we've heard. And so don't stop after a half-hearted, lazy, easy, quasi-investigative look at Christianity and then settle yourself in unbelief, ignoring the fact that you haven't really put in the effort that's needed. And the reason why is because the decision of whether or not to accept Christ or to remain Christian and connected to the church is so significant in your life that you owe it to yourself, if to no one else, to honestly read and study for yourself without cutting corners and without accepting easy answers. And I'm afraid most of the world can't do that. And so don't just listen to critics of Christ and Christianity, especially as Jesus, the church, and Christians are portrayed in the contemporary media. Instead, do your own investigation. Nothing less will do. If in the end, after much careful, serious thinking and investigation, you find Christ and Christianity not worth giving your life to, then so be it. At least you will have reached your conclusion in light of your own honesty and to your own intellectual satisfaction. And not just because those around you who live in a questionable world with questionable, questionable motives and who themselves may not have been very careful in doing their own searches have told you that Christ and Christianity don't deserve your attention or allegiance because they do. And if you choose Christ, you'll be doing so because you simply adopted, not because you simply adopted your parents' faith or have believed blindly. Instead, you'll have a faith that's grounded in what you seriously take to be the truth because you've investigated the question and found that God was quite capable of defending himself. You will have seriously considered Christ and Christianity then and will have chosen faith. And you will be Christian because you will have seen that it's the best system of faith the world has known because it's the only faith system in line with things as they really are. And so continue to look to Jesus, the originer, originator and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God on the throne. And to him, we all need to be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, there are challenges in our world 
to our faith like have not been present in my lifetime up until now. Our world has changed. It's not a Christian world. Our country is not a Christian country. I don't know if it ever was, but I know it's not now. And so, Lord, I would pray that for every person here, and especially the young, that you would help us to take seriously the claims that you've made through your Son. Help us, Father, to investigate those things for ourselves. Help us to have hearts as open to your truth as we are to these things that we see coming from the world, which sometimes make so little sense. Help us to continue to love and honor you. And I'm grateful today, God, for all the encouragement that we get from others, from the great cloud of witnesses, but then just from the person sitting next to us in the pew. Help us to encourage each other to be faithful to you for all our lives. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.